Good morning. My name is Karen. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 1, verses 1, 22, 28, and 31. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, then God blessed them, be fertile and multiply, and fill the waters in the sea, and let the birds multiply on the earth. God blessed them and said to them, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and master it, take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. God said everything he made, it was supremely good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Jill. The New Testament reading is found in Acts 27, 33 through 36. Just before daybreak, Paul urged everyone to eat. He said, this is the 14th day you've lived in suspense and you've not had even a bite to eat. I urge you to take some food. Your health depends on it. None of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God in front of them all, then broke it and began to eat. Everyone was encouraged and took some food. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Pam. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Luke 22, verses 14 to 15 and 19 to 20. When the time came, Jesus took his place at the table and the apostles joined him. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. After taking the bread and giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the meal and said, this cup is the new covenant by my blood which is poured out for you. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious God, we ask now that you would come by your Holy Spirit, breathe upon our hearts, open them up to you, Lord, that we would hear your word and hear you speaking to us, moving among, among us. We welcome you now. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Man, I've missed you. My name's Glenn Packiam. I'm the pastor here at New Life Downtown. I haven't seen you in about three weeks. Someone said, oh, where have you been? Did you go on vacation? I did not go on vacation. I was preaching up at New Life North, which is one of our other congregations. In fact, it is the mothership congregation. And uh, our senior pastor, Pastor Brady, has been out on sabbatical. So I preached couple Friday nights for Pastor Daniel Grothy, preached three Sundays uh, at New Life North, and all of that has been wonderful. And I'm glad to be back with all of you this morning. We're, next week, we're going to start a series together uh, through the book of Philippians. Philippians is a letter that Paul, a guy, church planner named Paul, uh, wrote to a group of Christians in this town of Philippi. We'll start that next week. Today, we're going to do a standalone message called Blessed Broken, given. Now, to the perceptive ones out there, if it sounds suspiciously like the title of my new book, you are correct. But the reason I'm doing this is not because of the book, it's because of you. 
Uh, you may know this, you may not know this. If you've been around New Life Downtown for a while, you probably really know this. But blessed, broken, given are words that we've said together as a congregation since New Life Downtown began. And it's the way that we began to make sense of our life as a congregation. We talked about the Lord's table and his body being blessed, broken, and given for us. And so I do want to read to you just out of the acknowledgments because New Life Downtown, you are in the acknowledgments. And so I just want you to hear that this morning. This was a practice before it ever appeared on a page. It was our manifesto before it was a manuscript. We began using this language, blessed, broken, given, when we began New Life Downtown as a congregation in 2012. I have a deep and special gratitude for our congregation for showing me what this looks like each week. So thank you for letting me be a witness to God's grace at work in you and for trusting me to share your stories. There are a number of NLD stories in here, New Life Downtown stories in here that you'll say, I know that guy. That's not his real name. You're right. I did change a lot of names. <laughs> you are the living epistle. You are this book in living community. I and this book have been formed by our life and worship together. So thank you, New Life Downtown. This is yours. So when you look at this picture of bread on the screen and you're kind of like, okay, nice churchy words, blessed, broken, given, blah, 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 picture of bread, making me hungry, or for some of you that have been gluten-free or celiac or whatever, this is like a trigger warning to you. You know, you're like, oh no, please get thee behind me. What is this all about? Uh, bread may be the most common food group in all of the world. It's sort of the staple part of our diet. Uh, there's a bakery in lower Manhattan that has on the wall pictures of bread from all around the world. And so you might have tortilla from uh, Mexico. You might have naan bread from India. You might have injara from Ethiopia. You might have bao, which is these buns in, in, in China. Uh, you might have baguettes in France, or croissants, if you will. And in America, we have sliced white bread. And it's really quite a marvel of modern technology. But bread is this staple part of our diet. Maybe there's nothing that speaks to our commonness. And so there's a sense in which bread is a good metaphor for understanding our lives. If we sat down and I said, tell me a bit about yourself, you might say, well, I'm nothing special, I'm just. And you would go on and, and say, well, I'm just a, you know, this or a that or a, an accountant or a salesperson. Or a, and bread is in some ways a way to think about our life. Well, it's just bread. And yet in the scriptures, even bread is not just bread. There's something remarkable about bread that is meant to actually help us see the whole creation in a different way. And so in the Old Testament, bread falls from heaven as a picture of God's provision uh, when the Israelites are talking about the law of the Lord, they compare it to bread. And so then when Jesus arrives and he says, I'm the bread of heaven, he's pulling together all of these themes and images so that they would think not just of this ordinary food item, but they would think about all of this, the powerful stuff behind the imagery of bread. Every time Jesus took bread in his hands, he blessed it, broke it, and gave it Luke of all the four gospel writers, Luke is the one that shows us the most, uh, does this the most intentionally. And so there's no doubt we're meant to sort of understand Jesus in this and to say it's Jesus who is blessed, broken, and given. And yet we can make this mistake as Christians and think, well, if Jesus is, then I am not. And we kind of think in binaries, ones and zeros, and so if he is, then I am not. But the New Testament is a little bit different than that. In fact, it flips it on its head and says, 
because Jesus is, you who are in Christ are. And so because Jesus is righteous, the righteous one, you become the righteousness of God. And so in a very real way, these three words or this picture of bread is a great way to understand our own life with Christ. Maybe we could see ourselves as bread that is blessed, broken, and given. And, it, and hopefully by the end of the morning, you'll say, okay, I think I see a little bit more about what that means. So the first word this morning, in the hands of Jesus, we become blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? If you were to ask Alexa or Siri or Google, or maybe if you're daring, click on the hashtag on any social media app for hashtag blessed, you would probably pull up an inordinate amount of artisan lattes. On <laughs> like maker wood tables, and somebody somewhere is saying, my life is so perfect because they made a leaf out of foamed milk, vegan oat milk, mind you, and therefore I am blessed. Now those might be all signs of God's grace and God's gifts, and that's perfectly okay, but it doesn't really give us the picture of what it means to be blessed. What does it really mean to be blessed? Luke 9 verse 13 is the first blessed, broken, given story that Luke tells. And in Luke 9, Jesus is, is talking to his disciples about these multitudes. The, the disciples thought they were going to get away with Jesus on a little retreat. Instead, multitudes follow them. The disciples are annoyed. Jesus is gracious. What else is new? And finally, it's the end of the day, and the disciples are like, send them, Jesus. Get them out of here. And he says, now you give them something to eat. But they said, we have no more than five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. Now, if you're the underlining type, you could underline or so circle that phrase, no more. We have no more than this. This is all we got. But by the end of the story, verse 16, it says, he took the five loaves, the stuff that they said was, meh, it's mere, this is all we got, and looked up to heaven, blessed them, broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And everyone ate till they were full, and the disciples filled 12 baskets with leftovers. What was not enough ends with being more than enough. What is no more than just five loaves becomes more than 12 basketfuls of leftovers. What was a desolate place becomes a place of abundance. This is our first clue into what it means to be blessed. Now, right off the bat, we need a qualifier. Because we can't hear this and then think, oh, so you're saying to be blessed is to have abundance. And you're like, well, I'm not feeling very blessed right now. To be blessed is to have the abundant life of Christ in us. Paul says in Ephesians, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. But the more is not about more stuff. It's about opening our eyes to see what's been there all along. Opening our eyes to realize, look, you were never just merely you. You were always something more than what you thought. There was more to you than what you imagined yourself to be. The, the, the word for blessed in this story is this Greek word that is related to our transliterated word eulogy. It's the Greek word eulogeo related to that. And so in a very real way, Jesus is praising bread, speaking well of it, giving God thanks for bread. It's interesting because in Genesis, Genesis written in Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek before the New Testament times, 
And when they translated it into Greek, they decided to use that Greek word, that God looking out over the world, and we heard the scriptures being read this morning, God looking out over the world, blessed it. I mean, can you imagine for a moment God creating you and then stepping back and saying, you're awesome. I praise you. I, I speak well of you. So many of us don't imagine God doing that about us. In fact, our narrative of God and his opinion of us begins not in Genesis 1, but in Genesis 3. And we think, we, we, even Genesis 3, by the way, is not about God speaking poorly of us. But our impression is that God's opinion of us, of you and of me, is you dirty, rotten sinner. In the beginning, you were a dirty, rotten sinner. Come to church and hear the good news. Step one, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. But the Bible doesn't begin that way. The Bible begins by saying, God made us in his image and God blessed them. God praised them, blessed them, spoke well of them. And then the very last verse of Genesis 1, 31, it says, and God saw everything he had made and it was supremely good. Like, not like, yeah, not bad, pretty good. I'll give that another shot tomorrow, you know? No, he's like, it is supremely good. Why am I saying all this to you? Because to be blessed is to let God retell your story. To be blessed is to let God take you back to the beginning. Every superhero has an origin story, and you have an origin story too. But it's not what you might have thought. You might have thought that your story began with bad news or began with a difficult family or a traumatic childhood. All of those things are legitimately a part of your story. I understand that. And we do want to bring them to the Lord and all of those kinds of things. But our real story has a much better beginning. Our real story begins when God looked out over the vast expanse of the cosmos and said, John, I make you and I bless you and I say you're supremely good. That's good news for us. To be blessed, amen, is to let God retell our story. When our oldest child was born, when Sophia was born, someone gave Holly and I this idea to begin to keep a journal for her and to write down some things. And so we'd write down some observations, favorite blankie and a nighttime bedtime routine and the things we would do 10 different times in the night to get her to go back to sleep and all of that stuff. But then as she grew older, we would write different things, these observations or the things you'd say or when you were four, you stood up on the kitchen bench and told us you were going to lead us all in worship, you know, and all of this stuff, which is quite fun to, for her to read now because at 14, she and her siblings are helping to lead worship over in the kids' room back there. So we, we began writing all this stuff down in this journal and stuff that we saw in her and stuff that, gifts that we began to see emerge as she got older. Well, last year when she was 13, we decided to let her read the journal. And we said, look, we're going to keep writing in it through your high school years. And when you're 18, it'll be yours to keep. But at 13, we want you to read it for the first time. Because in your teenage years, there's going to be a war for your identity. There's going to be a lot of voices who are going to try to tell you your story. And we just want you to know, as your father and as your mother, this is your story. This is who we see you to be. This is how we see God at work in your life. So we took her out for brunch and she's reading this journal for the first time and she's like laughing over the silly stuff and then she starts crying and then laughing again. And we're just sitting there thinking, God, 
let these seeds keep growing in her. God, cultivate this. Now, maybe you hear that and you're like, doggone it, I wish I had parents like that, you know? Uh, <laughs> Listen, you have a heavenly father like that. You have a heavenly father like that. The triune God hovers over you with love, calling you his beloved son and his beloved daughter. And the reason we as Christians want to read the Bible is not because we got to memorize the rule book so that we don't screw up accidentally and break a technicality in section four, line three, item number six, you know, and accidentally get sent to hell, you know. No, you read the Bible because the gracious and good God has a story that you are actually part of, and that's why you're blessed. And so many of us try to make meaning of our life by telling our own story. And we try to make meaning of our life by saying, well, I'll make something of myself. Or we try to make meaning of our life by fitting our life into the American dream story. And you're like, well, I don't very, look very much like the American dream story. Look, there's a better story than the American dream story out there for you. It's the story of the God who made he the heavens and the earth. And he calls you to be part of it. Amen? That's what it means to be blessed. What does it mean to be broken? In the hands of Jesus, your life becomes broken. Broken is an interesting word. It usually flags images of something that is useless. Some years ago, I had a wheelbarrow that had a broken wheel, and I didn't quite know, you know, how should I replace it, but I really didn't need the wheelbarrow anymore, so I posted on Facebook that I was giving it away, but that it had a broken wheel. And this guy, one of you here at NLD, Smart Alec, said, uh, said oh, blessed, broken, given, you know. <laughs> and he thought it was pretty funny that, is, that, that broken is the this, this stuff we get rid of. That's, that's true. <laughs> is this what brokenness is about? When we use the word broken, we, we tend to, to, to mean three different things. And uh, I, I want to outline just a few of them. One is brokenness that is the kind of frailty. Uh, the sense that we are coming up short, uh, that we just can't quite do it, that we're being flooded by our frailty and limitations. The psalmist says that the Lord has compassion on us like a father does for his children, and the Lord knows our frame, our, how we're made, that we're just dust. Isn't that beautiful? That, that you don't have to be ashamed of your frailty. God knows that you're not God. God knows that you're not unlimited. And it is one of the great lies that we should chase some sort of immortality, unlimited life. Look, the, what the Bible says is not to escape your limitations, but to actually confess them. And to say, I'm not God, but you are. And there's freedom in that confession. The second kind of brokenness, brokenness is a little bit more painful to admit. It's the brokenness not of our frailty, but of our failure. When we've actually broken solidarity with another, the secular sociologist Randall Collins says, shame results when there's been a break in solidarity in human relationships. You think about this in a social level. You think about when you've done something that has broken the trust of another or when you've fallen short, you, you've failed in some way to another person. There's no way to shake the fact that you've broken something. Something has been severed. The Christian word for that is sin. But sin is not just scolding. Sin is the sense that there's a fracture here. There's a break here. The third kind of brokenness is 
the brokenness that results from the fallenness of the world. Sometimes it's not simply stuff in here, but stuff out there. And you think about what's happening in our own community, and you think about stuff that hits the headlines every day, and you think, oh, God, that's not right. That is broken. The system is broken. Why does justice not seem to be served? Why, why can't we get this right? With this? And you can name specific things. And it's the brokenness out there that begins to touch our own hearts and we become brokenhearted. But no matter what the type of brokenness is, our brokenness can become a kind of openness. You, know, you think about bread at a restaurant when they bring it out to you. Those of you who still can have bread, God bless you. And you break it and dip it in the olive oil. It, it's the opening, it's the breaking of the bread that opens it up to, to the porous part of the bread and it begins to absorb the oil. And so there's a sense in which to be broken is to be opened up to the grace of God. If we place our brokenness in Jesus' hands, it becomes the kind of brokenness that actually opens us up. And we're able to say, in any, in any form of that brokenness, you might be uh, a brokenness of frailty, and you might say, God, I do need your grace to help me. Or a failure, God, I do need your forgiveness to heal this, this relationship. God, I do need your justice, your mending of the world, your shalom in the midst of a broken society and world. God, we need this. And so often we tend to think of being opened up to the grace of God as a private spiritual thing. In Psalm 42, the psalmist finds himself in a dry and thirsty place and he says, oh, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. And we're like, yes, that's what I need. All I need is you, Jesus. And of course, at its essence, that's true. Jesus is the only one. But the beautiful thing about how God works is one of the ways, maybe the chief way that the grace of God meets us is through the people of God. That the grace of God arrives to us through others, through the people of God. So the psalmist goes on a few verses later in Psalm 42 and says, in my broken and thirsty place, I remembered how there was a crowd of people who used to walk to your holy place, to Zion. That's a picture to me of saying when I don't have the strength to make it to the fountain of living water, sometimes I need a little help from my friends. And I need them to put their arms around me and to say, come on, we're going to walk, we're going to limp, we're going to crawl, but we're going to make it to the house of the Lord because this is where our help comes from. I remember when we had our fourth child, Jane was born in June of 2012, and and we, you know, we had three kids, and, and there were a lot of people who had four kids. A lot of our friends had four kids, and, uh, and they said to us, they said, oh, you know, three kids to four kids, not a big deal. You're already playing zone defense. The fourth one's no big deal. And uh, when we had our fourth, I wanted to find those people and say, you lied. <laughs> and it just sort of took us down. But it was also the summer that we launched New Life Downtown. April of 2012 was when we started New Life Downtown, and 
uh, we had this brilliant idea to say, well, let's just keep it simple. We gather around the Lord's table on Sundays. Let's gather around each other's tables during the week. And so in the summer of 2012 was birthed the idea of meal groups. And we said, look, we don't need you to be an expert in Romans. We don't need you to be a, a licensed professional counselor, though that helps. Uh, it may help in situations. But really what we want you to do is just be willing to open up your home and organize a potluck essentially uh, twice a month or more. And we said, you got to meet together, you got to eat together, you got to share something of your life for the scriptures together, and then you got to pray for one another. And people said, yeah, we can do that, let's do that. And Holly and I were like, well, let's go visit all these new meal groups, and we would, a couple nights a week, we're trucking along with, you know, with little Jane and the carrier, and we're going to apartments and homes all around the city, and it was just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then somewhere in the fall, it just all, we, we just crashed. And we could feel our souls just sort of caving and giving way. And it was only after the fact that we realized that, uh, that what was actually going on was some postpartum stuff that Holly was experiencing. We didn't know it at the time. We're trying to push through, trying to keep on going. Like so many of you, you think, well, this is just what you do. And finally, one night in October, it became very clear, this is, we're not doing okay. Something's uh, uh, happening. And, uh, and I, we... My instinct was to pick up the phone and call my parents who were still living in Malaysia at the time and you know, Holly's family's in Iowa and in that, that year, that summer, they were going through some, some, some stuff that uh, made them not as available to us and, and I called my parents and my dad answered in kind of his characteristic way, if you know my dad, you know, how you doing, son? And, uh, and I, just, I just sort of blurted out, not very well. And, uh, and I said, I don't see it. We're, we're feeling really overwhelmed. And um, before I even knew what to ask, he said, do you want me to come? Now, this is like maybe not the most practical suggestion. You know, like Malaysia's on the other side of the world. Uh, the world is round. And, um, and uh, no matter what Kyrie Irving says, uh, and... and, and and my mom was running a school that was a major part of the outreach in the community, and they were getting ready for their big end of the year performance, and she was overseeing all this, and she was not as freed up to be able to come. And my dad had a bit of flexibility. He said, he said look, let me, let me see what I can work out. And he calls back like 30 minutes later and says, okay, I've used airline miles. I've got it all figured out. I'll be there uh, next month. And he came and stayed with us for a month. Uh, and, and took care of Jane, took care of the other three kids, helped us in the kitchen, brought that sort of dad presence of peace into the home, you know. And it was an amazing, amazing time. And then after that, when he went back, you would think that we'd be like, okay, we're fine now. That was a rough patch, but we're okay, you know. And it just sort of continued. And we couldn't, we couldn't quite fully get on our feet. And I was gone on a ministry trip. I think this is in November. And it's always when I'm gone that somebody gets sick, you know. So while I'm gone, Jane had a double ear infection. We're like, oh my gosh. And Holly's like melting it down. I'm like, oh, we're going to make it through. And Evan and Karen Riedel said, oh, we'll come over. And they came over and stayed with her and the kids and like took shifts, rocking Jane, sitting on the steps right outside her room. And, and, and we thought, these are the moments where we need one another. But I'll tell you the lie that keeps us from this. The lie that keeps us from this is we kind of think that in the church there are people who have their life together and there are people who clearly don't. <laughs> and we shall once in a while do something kind for those poor miserable souls who can't seem to figure it out. Right, right? 
And we're kind of like, we're the pastors. We're supposed to be there for other people. And we keep asking people to be there for us. And then we realize, actually, the New Testament doesn't have that kind of hierarchy. The New Testament says over and over and over again, one another. Love one another. Be tenderhearted to one another. Serve and kind. Be kind and forgive one another. That there's a mutuality in the kingdom of God that doesn't create class divisions within the church of the spiritual elites and the poor spiritual, you know, impoverished ones. No, 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 no. We are all in need of the bread of life. And we're all going to help each other find Jesus as our source. Amen? And that's what the church is about. Jesus, in Luke, 24, or Luke 22, it says, when the time had come, Jesus took his place at the table and the apostles joined him and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It's important that Luke paints the picture and says, before Jesus takes bread and blesses it and breaks it the second time in Luke's gospel, the backdrop is Passover. What's the deal with that? What's Passover? Passover is maybe the most significant moment in all of Old Testament Israel's history. It's the story of God rescuing them from Egypt, but really it's the story of God judging evil and forgiving sins covering over sins. And so when you think of Passover, you're basically thinking about the question, what will God do with brokenness? What will God do with a broken world? And what will God do with the, bro the brokenness of our own sin and failure and all of that stuff? And Passover is this moment where the thundering answer to that is that God will deal with evil and forgive our sins and in doing so, heal the world. That's the answer. And so it's at Passover then that Jesus says in verse, it says in verse 19, that after taking bread and giving thanks, Jesus broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. This is when we begin to see what will Jesus do with our broken pieces of our lives? He'll say, yeah, I was broken right there with you. I was broken for your sin. And I was broken by the suffering that you experienced. In the Old Testament, the psalmist said, God is near to the brokenhearted. But in Jesus, we discover God became the brokenhearted. You never have to feel a sense of distance from God because of your brokenness. In fact, he might be closest to you in that very moment. And to say in your brokenness, Jesus is there too saying, I'm broken for you so that this doesn't have to be the end of the story. What follows the cross is the resurrection. <clears throat> what follows our brokenness is a kind of redemption and restoration that results in something more beautiful than we could have imagined. Sometimes we get hints of that in this life and we're like, oh my goodness, wow, look at grace breaking through. But even when we don't, even when we don't get the signs of that redemption in this life, we have this amazing hope. The last line of the Christian confession, the Nicene Creed says, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. This is God's announcement to us that what is now broken, will not stay that way. There's a redemption that's coming that is stronger than you could have imagined. And maybe you're sitting here and you're like, well, I mean, that's how. You know, like anything that I break <laughs> ends up worse. 
you know? Like, this, how, how could it ever be better? It's an imperfect metaphor, but maybe one that gets as close as a Japanese art of pottery called kintsugi. And kintsugi literally means golden joinery or golden seams. What happened was the, these bowls would break. Probably they had children. And, um, <laughs> and then they would repair it with this liquid resin that looked like gold. And it became so precious, in fact, so beautiful. Look at this next picture, so beautiful that art collectors in the 15th century would, would purposely break bowls so that it could be repaired like this. These bowls ended up becoming more valuable, more desirable, more precious because of the repair. More precious than they were prior to their brokenness. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like grace. Paul wrote, where sin abounds, then grace abounds more. There's a moreness to God that sin could never keep up with. There's a moreness to God's blessing and redemption that sin could never keep up with. The early Christians began to catch just how much more powerful resurrection was than death, and they began to sing in the fifth century an Easter hymn that said, O Felis Culpa, O fortunate fall that gained for us so great a redeemer. And what they began to realize was, yes, the fall was bad. Yes, our sin was bad. Yes, our failure was bad. But only God can take these broken pieces and make something more beautiful, more precious, more valuable than we could ever have imagined. So much so that we look back at it and say, fortunate fall that gained for us so great a redeemer. Grace is like this gold that holds the pieces together, that makes your life and my life more beautiful than we could have imagined. Jesus doesn't leave our brokenness in his hands the way it is. And finally, in the hands of Jesus, our life becomes given. All of this, the blessedness and the brokenness, was not meant to end in itself. Otherwise, church would just be a happy Jesus club where people say, oh, I'm blessed, how are you? I'm blessed, I'm blessed. I'm a little broken right now, but I'm blessed, you know, blah, 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 you know. Great, so what? And then we disappear from the face of Colorado Springs one day and people say, well, we don't even miss those guys. But our blessedness and our brokenness is meant to result in a givenness for the life of the world. For the life of the world. The last blessed, broken, given story that Luke tells is actually in the book of Acts. And we find Paul on a prison sh prisoner ship. He's a prisoner, and he's being bound up on this ship. They, they encounter a storm. He tries to speak up. They tell him to be quiet. The centurion takes charge. And then they get shipwrecked. And then Paul's like, now do you all want to listen to me? Anybody? And they're like, okay, fine. Paul, what do you have to say? And Paul stands up, and he says, just before daybreak, Paul urged everyone to eat. You're like, Paul, that's what you have to say? Like, Eat? Yes, listen, he said, this is the 14th day you've lived in suspense and you've not had even a bite to eat. I urge you to take some food. Your health depends on it. And then he says, a word of hope. None of you will lose a single hair from his head. And after he said these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God. Same word used in Luke 22, Eucharisteo, this time a word that makes us think of the Lord's table. He gives thanks to God in front of them all. And then broke it and began to eat. And everyone was encouraged and took some food. You know what I love about this story? 
is it doesn't happen in church. It doesn't happen in the synagogue. It doesn't happen at a prayer meeting. It doesn't happen at all the wonderful things that we do as Christians. It happens out on a Roman slave ship, a Roman prison ship. Paul understands that God's blessing, that your life is meant to be a blessing for everyone. Christians of all people should be the ones to say, here, let me serve you, let me help you, not be the first ones to say, I'm sorry, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Okay, here's a can of food for you. Christians say, I, because I believe in Jesus, I am here for your sake. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to bless you. Paul is a prisoner who starts acting like a priest in the midst of a quote-unquote secular environment. That's what it looks like to be given. To be given is to live for the sake of the world. To live for the sake of the world. To begin to say every moment of every day, I'm here for the sake of the people that I'm around. Now I know when you listen to that, you think, well, shoot. That just sounds like one more thing to do. And I have a full plate and school's starting back up and I basically turn into an unpaid Uber driver. <laughs> Working carpool. Like, how? Oh, what am I supposed to do? Look, sometimes it's not about adding something to your schedule, but changing the way you see your schedule. Changing your perspective on it. To change the metaphor from bread, let's imagine your life as a bucket. And you come on Sunday morning and you're like, oh Lord, I'm so empty, fill me up. And Brian Bettis and the worship team always do an amazing job. And so by the end of our time of worship and song, you're like, "Woo, I'm almost to the brim. And then the sermon adds a couple more drops and you're like, okay, I'm ready now for the world, you know. You go out into the world and you're living your life, but it feels like Monday morning comes and it's like drip, drip, and drip. And as Harry Belafonte is saying, there's a hole in the bucket. You just feel like, man, everybody just keeps taking from me. Oh my gosh, this is so exhausting. Monday is terrible. Tuesday's worse. By the time you get to Saturday, you're like, okay, fine, I'll go to church. You're like, fill me up, Lord. Only to start again. Drip, drip, leak, leak. Oh, the kids. Oh, the... listen. There's two ways for water to leave a bucket. It can drain out, or it can be poured out. Paul the apostle said, "My life is being." poured out like a drink offering. And you're like a glen, but you're, listen, my schedule does not feel like I'm being poured out. It feels like people are taking from me all day long. You have no idea. Oh, yes, I do. But Jesus said, no one takes my life. I lay it down. It's all about how you see it. What if you look at your calendar for Monday and you say, okay, tonight, before you go to bed, you say, okay, I got, this is my morning, these are my clients, these are the phone calls, these are the chores, these are the carpool duties, these are the, and say, okay, God, send me into my day. Send me into my day and spend me, pour me out, make me a missionary in every moment of my day today. You may not be on a prison ship, but you may be in the carpool line at school. You say, you're stuck, I'm stuck here. Okay, well, Lord, pour me out. God, spend me. Make me given for the life of the world. The only way that this happens is not because we try harder and become smarter and become clever. The only way that this happens is when we turn over our whole lives to Jesus. And some of you are here and you're, you've been reluctant to that. You're like, well, I, I would like to be the author of my own story 
Or you're saying, well, there's too much mess here. I'm not sure I want to talk to someone or let someone in about the mistakes I've made or the things I'm struggling with. You say, well, I'm not sure I want God to send me into every moment. I kind of want to keep my life like this part of my world is quarantined from God. (laughs) The only way that this happens is when we turn it all over to Jesus. When we surrender it all to him. Only Jesus can take your story and make it sacred. Only Jesus can take these moments, the mundane and the messy, the ordinary and the messed up. Only Jesus can take it. Make it sacred in his hands. So as the worship team comes this morning, we're getting ready to come to the table of the Lord. And this is the moment where we remember the grace of God given for us. Remember Jesus being blessed and broken and given for us. And our response is to say, well, Jesus, I want to do this great exchange thing. I want to renew that. I want to offer you all of the pieces of my life, of my day, and let you take it. And let you make it something more. More than what I see. More than what I realize. Jesus, I want to find glory in the ordinary. I want to find grace in the mess. I want to find purpose each day. Would you bow your heads this morning?